Hey there, Margie Bryce here bringing you the Krabby Pastor Podcast. And I don't think you're going to be too surprised to know that it's too easy today to become the Krabby Pastor. Our time together will give you food for thought to help you be the ministry leader fully surrendered to God's purposes and living into whatever it takes to get you there and keep you there. So we're talking about sustainability in ministry. This is the first time that I'm going to do this uh, on the Krabby Pastor podcast, but I really felt like Somebody out there must need some encouragement. And courage then is maybe being afraid or anxious and doing it anyway. So encouragement is seeking to give you some courage. And where am I going today? I am going to the Old Testament. Um, This is in 1 Kings 19, and I'm going to be toddling around in 1 through 15. I'm kind of a big hunk of scripture gal anyway. So I'm going to share what's on my heart today and maybe you'll get some courage. So the passage starts like this. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say this. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Hmm. So she's after him, and she's going to kill him now. So Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. I'll add, alone. He came to a broom tree and sat down under it, and he prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. I have had enough, Lord. I mean, I think it's good to know that there is a scriptural example of moping, pouting, eating your heart, out about life, brooding, ruminating, you know, whatever you want to call it. You know, Elijah says, I've had enough, Lord. He He's discouraged. I have had enough, Lord. I heard of an old fable that says the devil once held a sale and offered all the tools of his trade to anyone who would pay their price. They were spread out on the table and each one was labeled. There was hatred, malice, envy, despair, sickness, any weapon that many of us are familiar with. But off to one side lay this little harmless-looking wood-shaped instrument marked discouragement. It was old and worn-looking, but it was priced far above all the rest. And when, when they asked the reason why, the devil said, because... I can use this one so much more easily than the others. No one knows it belongs to me, so with it I can open doors that are tightly bolted against the others. And once I get inside, I can use any tool that suits me best. So that fable reminds us of the power of discouragement. 
Um, and, and, you know, I'm not a there's a devil behind every rock kind of gal, but I think that sometimes we can be our own worst enemy as well. I mean, it's almost silly for me to ask if you've ever felt discouraged or looked at your life and thought, this just isn't adding up to much, and I've had it. Or, you know, the circumstances aren't adding up to the way you thought they would, and you've just plain had it. And you want to go find a place away from everyone and everything else and just sit there. You know, on a, on a minor scale, I'm, you know, I've recently had a series of if anything can go wrong, it, it will. You know, a construction project at my home was delayed and we didn't hear from the contractor for a while, didn't hear, didn't hear. Unfortunately, we like knew where he lived and drove over there. Come to find out his wife was seriously ill. So, you know, then it's going to be deferred longer. And then around the same time or at the same time, you know, we had ordered some carpet, replacing some carpet that's probably more than 20 years old in the home we had purchased. And the carpet guys come out and they were supposed to do the upstairs and the stairs stairs and then stairs to downstairs if you follow that and they didn't order enough so they have to come back in a week and then there was the new washer and dryer because i have a leaky washer and i don't know how old this equipment is here again it's a home we purchased and the guy comes out to finally deliver and the vent hose is not long enough and he's gonna reschedule the delivery and then when I call about rescheduling, I find out it's canceled. And then you have to go back to the store and reorder the whole thing again. And it just I just thought, can anything go smoothly with any of this? I wasn't exactly where Elijah was, but you kind of you know, you at least want to go hide or, yeah, hide. Yeah, I'm sticking with hide <laughs> somewhere. So we have Elijah hiding out under the broom tree and you know let's look a little bit at what took place before this what led up to this and maybe that's going to help us a bit probably help us to understand some discouragement and why Elijah was lacking in the hope department so backpedaling a bit on Elijah's life you know he's called by God he's asked to go to King Ahab and say it's not going to rain until God says it is and this judgment came because God was not happy with evil King Ahab. He had a reputation of doing more evil to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. That is quite a reputation. So, And, you know, the rain thing is not a small thing in arid lands, right? So Elijah's job is to tell the king that no rain is going to come until God decides and then God tells Elijah to go hide. You know, that's quite a calling, isn't it? And Elijah goes to hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and God sends ravens to feed him and bring him water, which is pretty cool because there ain't no Jimmy Johns out there. But maybe there were freaky fast ravens sent by God. So yay for that. And it's a time of learning for Elijah to learn to trust God despite what the circumstances might look like which, you know, on the right day is a good thing, but on the wrong days, sometimes we have trouble gaining that kind of perspective. So from there, God sends Elijah to Zarephath and points him in the direction of the widow who's gathering sticks to make her final starvation meal for herself and her son. And God says, well, there's your provision, Elijah. 
And at that point, Elijah maybe had learned to not look so closely at the circumstances. I mean, if God could feed and take care of him at Kareth, God certainly could do it again through a starving widow, right? And God did provide. The entire time Elijah was was there, there, her flour was never empty and her oil jar was always full. I mean, God even brought uh, her son back to life through the prayers of the prophet Elijah. And it's that's the first record of something like that occurring in scripture. So, I mean, how did Elijah know God would do that? But anyway, from his introduction in scripture as Elijah, you know, to now the resurrection of the widow's son, Elijah is now described as a man of God. So next we get to the high point in Elijah's work as a servant of God. After three years, Elijah hears God speak and tell him to present himself to King Ahab again and that God would send rain on the earth. You know, so in the midst of facing King Ahab again, Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal, that was a popular god of the day, to this showdown at Mount Carmel to reveal to the people of Israel that God was indeed the one true living God and that Baal was nothing. So it was a challenge to be a wake-up call to the people of Israel who had kind of gotten drawn into the popular worship of the day, leaving the one true living God marginalized or out of their lives and hearts completely. Here's the showdown. 850 prophets of Baal and the people of Israel had assembled on Mount Carmel, and and Elijah sets the stage. The Baals got to choose a bull, sacrifice it, place the pieces on wood, but not set fire to it. And Elijah did the same with his sacrifice bull. And then the Baals were to call upon their God to set fire to the sacrifice. You know, so then after waiting all day and watching the Baals do various wild and crazy things to attract the attention of their so-called God, Elijah drew the people in close so they could see what he was about to do. And he built an altar with stones and digs a trench around the altar. He arranges the wood puts the sacrifice bull on it and proceeds to pour water on the offering and on the wood, you know, enough to more than saturate them. I mean, the water ran down and even filled the trench. And then he prays a simple prayer, one that asks God to reveal, you know, reveal himself as God. Immediately, fire consumes the offering and the stones on the altar, the soil as well as the water in the trench, and this even had the desired effect that the hearts of the people were turned back to God. And Elijah had all of the prophets seized and they were slaughtered. I mean, it's a little on the gruesome side, sort of, but it's also a pretty incredible saga, don't you think? I mean, this is where we pick up Elijah at the beginning of our text where Jezebel, King Ahab's wife, is pretty ticked about the slaughter of the prophets of Baal and sends Elijah a message that basically says, I'm going to kill you now. So in verse 19, 3, Elijah is afraid and he runs for his life. Now, this time the Lord hadn't told him to do this. It's not like when God told Elijah to hide at Kareth and be fed by the freaky fast ravens. Uh, Then Elijah dumps his servant at Beersheba, 
at the southern edge of the kingdom and goes on alone, a full day's journey into the desert where he is under the broom tree saying, I have had enough, Lord. So what happened? Where did our strong, faithful, obedient man of God go? How did he get from point A at Mount Carmel to point B moping in the desert? I mean, I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. And maybe today we would say, I've had enough, Lord. I want out. I'm not better than anyone else around here. And we're hearing that discouragement. You know, as a studier then of God's word, we, we kind of want to see why the writer of First Kings included this rather tarnished picture of Elijah. I mean, it could have been left out, I suppose, but I think it's to remind us of something that I know I need reminding of frequently. Elijah was human. We're all human. Regardless of whether we're reading the Old or New Testament, riding in a chariot or a Harley, counting on an abacus or carding a cell phone, you know, people are basically people. People have not changed. Our inclinations have not changed, you know. But we can learn some things from Elijah's time of discouragement because we all are there at one time or another. The first thing is, as in Elijah's case, there's a danger of discouragement after tremendous success. You know, gravity says what goes up must come down. And in times of great success and elation, after meeting that goal, after having a stupendous number of people come at Christmas or Easter, watch out. The downtime is coming. No one stays on the mountaintop forever. In fact, we mostly live in the day-to-day trenches down in the valley of real life. But we need to know that times of discouragement are likely to be on their way after times of great success and elation. The other thing about discouragement is that Elijah secluded himself. He dropped off his servant at Beersheba and went on totally alone. And yeah, there are times where we feel so down and discouraged, we think we're just too disgusting for other people to be around. And by secluding ourselves, however, we actually heighten our own sense of discouragement. We need to be around other people who can build us up. You know, even the times where I have had to push myself to go to attend church or Bible study, and I'm just not feeling up for it, and It's not what I feel like doing, you know, and I haven't attended with my halo shined perfectly and a smile on my face, and you could describe me as lumpy, maybe. Those are the moments that God will reach down for us because a half-hearted effort is still an effort, and God knows that and will bless us for that. So, okay, you get Elijah. He lays down under the tree falls asleep. And all at once an angel touched him, the passage says. And the angel said, this, get up and eat. And he looked around and by his head, there was a cake of bread and hot coals and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and laid down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So Elijah got up and ate and drank, strengthened by that food, He then traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. 
Ooh. So, gee, this provision of food and drink also met another need of Elijah's. You know, after the trek from Mount Carmel to Beersheba, the southernmost part of the kingdom, Elijah decides that's not far enough and goes another day in the desert all alone. You know, just thinking about everything that took place on Mount Carmel, Elijah had to be fatigued emotionally, physically, both. Low blood sugar, maybe. The fight or flight endorphin high, followed by that low. And these are all times when we are more susceptible to being depressed and discouraged, not to mention at night. Things always seem worse at night, don't they? Your baby or toddler has a 102 degree temperature. It's worse for you at night dealing with it. But daytime, it's, it's a different thing. Same scenario, different thing. And God saw that Elijah was rested and properly nourished. And then Elijah travels 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. Maybe it was God's provision of bread and drink that reminded Elijah of the provision at Kareth that prompted Elijah to go to Horeb. At any rate, Elijah heads to God. He knew where to go in times of discouragement. He said, I am taking myself to God. As pathetic as I may be at this moment, I am taking myself to God. And for us, you know, we should do no less. No matter how discouraged you are, whether you're discouraged by your circumstances because you don't understand what's going on, take it to God. He knows anyway, and he knows what's eating us up better than we do. And God is gracious. God is gracious. And he goes to Mount Horeb, and at the end of verse 9, he goes into a cave and spends the night. This is Elijah. And the word of the Lord comes to him. And he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And as if God doesn't know. But this is the reply. I love this reply. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword, and I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. I like this because it sounds a little whiny, and maybe I did that a little bit of justice that way. But, I mean, you think God doesn't know all this? Yet, he asks Elijah, he is the loving father who asks and wants to hear us. How many times do we ask our children things we already know just because we want to hear them tell us? And how much more does God want to hear us, hear us share what is uttermost on our hearts? And Elijah sought nothing less than God's voice. Speak to me. Tell me it's going to be okay. Think of that in light of all that Elijah had been through, and he still needed to hear that it's going to be okay. And I don't know where you are today, but I'm going to be the one here to say that to you. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. So Elijah didn't hear God's voice in the powerful wind or the earthquake or the fire. It wasn't in the destructive elements. It was in that still, small voice, the gentle whisper. And it wasn't accusatory or degrading. God doesn't say, look here, stupid. Get with the program. God's voice encourages and builds up. God is the loving God who, when we fall down, runs to pick us up and dust us off and works to prepare us for what's next. 
just as he did here for Elijah. A friend of mine shared this little story with me, and I'm going to share it with you now as I just kind of close this little biblical devotion for you. Walking with the Lord is like going to school. Let's say your teacher is your friend, and they want you to pass because if you fail, you know it's a reflection on their teaching. So they spend days giving the material, making sure you understand, and then when they think you have it, they give the test. During the teaching time, the student can ask all kinds of questions, but when the test comes, the teacher steps back and says, no more questions now. I want to see if you know the material. But it seems like during those times, God has moved and left no forwarding address, and you're in the desert, just like Elijah, under the tree, and God is quiet. Just when you need his voice and answers, God's the quietest. Of course, my teacher hadn't left me. He was just standing at the back of the classroom watching to see if I passed the test. Furthermore, the teacher was cheerfully, quietly cheering me on. Come on. I know you know this stuff. Now apply it. You can do it. Prove to me that I taught you well. So, I find it easier when the trying times come to say, this is a test. I know this material. My teacher wouldn't give me a test unless he had covered the material well. I need to trust and hang on and hang on and rejoice that your teacher knows when the test seems too hard and you think you're flunking anyway, so you might as well quit, that we have a teacher who is absolute in compassion and cares so much that he will tiptoe over to us and whisper words of encouragement, even though it's a test and he's not supposed to help during the test. So we need to rejoice because this teacher is the one who ultimately causes us to pass the test. So I want to ask, where do you go in times of discouragement? Do you isolate yourself and make things worse? Or do you reach out to a fellow brother or sister in Christ for help? Do you seek God's voice? Are we teachable and trusting God? Are we asking God to show us what God would have us to learn in the midst of our desert? Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, Hebrews 12.2 says, and allow him who is able to complete the work he has begun in us. So be blessed this day, and this is the Krabby Pastor, signing out. Hey, thanks for listening. It is my deep desire and passion to champion issues of sustainability in ministry and for your life. So I'm here to help. I stepped back from pastoral ministry and I feel called to help ministry leaders uh, create and cultivate sustainability in their lives so that they can go the distance with God and whatever plans that God has for you. I would love to help. I would consider it an honor. And in all things, make sure you connect to these sustainability practices, you know, so that 
you don't become the crabby pastor. <laughs>